Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. That's our cry this morning, Father. What we do not know, teach us. What we do, reinforce and impress. What we resist, enforce upon our lives. We need you to change our hearts and our minds and our convictions because we are helpless and absolutely desperate for you to change us. We pray these things for your glory's sake. Amen. James chapter 1. It's a joy to be back into the pulpit. When I don't preach, I feel like something's missing. Not that Peter and Don are doing a bad job. (laughs) I love opening God's word and preaching. This morning we return to this book and you will see why I did a short series on the attributes of God in preparation for what we will be speaking about this morning. This first chapter of James is structured around three theological gems which I call bombshells. Number one is God is the source of wisdom. Number two is that God has an essential unchanging nature. And number three is God's divine activity and work. So James takes the entire chapter we reach, deals with trials, and he puts these three pillars of theology in the middle of it to structure the believer's mind in the midst of hardship. But right in the middle of this storehouse of theology, he places a theology of man. And we will look at that next week. While James focuses on God and his work and his person, he punctuates the person of God and the work of God and the essence of God with anthropology, a view of man. And I want you to give attention to that when we give Uh, When we get to it next week, we won't touch on that this morning. Why? Why does he encapsulate an understanding of man with the theology of God? Why start with God and end with God? Yes, why? Two reasons. Two reasons. Theology. A right view of God sustains God's people. Does that make sense? If you have a proper understanding of who God is, then you can live rightly. In the midst of diverse trials, hardship, affliction, James gives these believers three theological points to hang their lives on. If God is infinitely wise, he will act consistently and infinitely in that way. That means, He infinitely does good for his people because of the nature of his essence. Why is this important? Here's why. Because the rudder of the believer's life is a robust understanding of God. You know, when I say rudder, I'm using an analogy of a ship, right? That which turns the ship, for those of you who don't know. The buoyancy in a hardship 
that lifts the believer up to rise amid life's difficulties, challenges, and circumstances is a conviction of the person, work, and perfection of God. What keeps you afloat when everybody else is sinking? It's knowing God. Appropriate song to end the singing section with. The rock of assurance for the believer's confidence is an absolute, unflinching, unshakable belief that God is who He says He is always. That is understanding the immutability of God and depending upon that for your life. James knows that the greatest need for the believer is not the eradication of a trial. It is not the end of difficulty. It's not even relief from hardship, but trusting in an infinitely wise, good, and holy God. So to help them live in the midst of hardship and trials, he tells them about God. This is what we are looking at this morning. We see a revelation of the essence of God because there is nothing more important to the life and walk of a believer than a refreshing grasp of the essence of God. I don't know about you, but I love reading about God. I love learning new things about God. So, a proper theology is essential to live in the midst of trials. Secondly, anthropology. A right view of man which flows from a right view of, uh, right view of God. You cannot have a right view of yourself. And mankind, if we do not have a right view of God. If we understand the perfections and attributes of God, we can better see ourselves in the light of that reality. Often, we do the opposite. We see God through our own eyes, through our own afflictions, through the world's eyes, through culture's eyes. We want God to accommodate us and our lack of understanding. Scripture is a revelation of God. Where does Genesis start? In the beginning, man? No. It reveals God. And then later on it says, and God made man. Why do you have that order? Why does it not start with, in the beginning, God made a garden and put Adam and Eve in the corner. Why doesn't it start there? Because creation is not about man, it is about God. There's an immediate creator-creation relationship established in the garden. As free as Adam was, it was still limited and subordinate to the one who created him. Let me say it this way. Adam was not eternally free. If he was, he was God. He would be God. There's only one eternally free person in the entire existence of time. It is God. Which means then, God, man is subordinate to who first? God. That's your first place of submission. God. Not the church, not the pastors, not the government, but God. Understand, God provides a proper perspective for mankind. When we know more about God, we can understand our relationship with God a little 
better. James knows this. And throughout this book, he magnifies certain attributes of God. What we truly believe about God. The evidence of our faith, the evidence of our convictions becomes evident in the midst of trials. Our convictions are made manifest, are revealed when we go through hardship. Do not remove these theological truths or pillars from its context. God is wise and therefore the source of wisdom. God is not evil, therefore can do no evil. God is eternally good and therefore only gives good gifts. James wants the believers to see and live their lives regardless of their circumstances through the lens of who God is. Why? The knowledge of God enables the believer to count it all joy. Endure for God. Ask wisdom from God. And receive from God even the affliction that he may give. So this morning we will look at one of these revealed attributes in the book of James. Our passage extends from verse 13 through to verse 18. But for the purposes of our time we will only give attention to verse 13 this morning. And there is a minor break in verse 16. Remember I said that whenever there is a um, command followed by my brothers, or my brothers followed by a command. That is a break in the sequence of events. Here we have a minor break in verse 16 from the context of trials and temptation to the gift of God, and there's a connection between the two. That's why I say minor break. So let me give you a big picture perspective first of the passage as a whole, 13 through to 18. Number one, we see the revelation of the divine essence of God in verse 13. Secondly, we see the innate nature of man in verse 14 to 15. Number three, we see the immutable character of God in verse 16 to 17. And then fourthly, we see the divine work of God in verse 18. That's the entire big picture scope of this entire section, 13 through to 18. God, man, God, God. God's essence, man's nature, God's character, and God's Work. This is the outline for the next four weeks, including today. So this morning we will cover the divine essence of God. Read with me James chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 12 through to 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creations. James in verse 13 
reveals two important qualities about God. First, he tells us that this relates to the divine essence of God and then bases his command on that. What is it? Number one, don't blame God for temptation. God is not responsible for people's sinful temptations. This point can be seen in the beginning stages of verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. I think it's very simple. It's pretty clear what James is saying. It's a command. Let no one say or no person must say that I'm tempted by God. Now the no one here must be taken in the context of a believer. It is true that it can apply to everybody else, but I, I, I want to limit it to the believer because I think James limits it to a believer in the context of trials. So this is not a blanket statement, while true, for all people. However, he's focusing in on those who are in the midst of the trial and saying to them, don't you ever blame God for your temptation. No one who is in a trial, who is being matured by God in the trial, must turn on God and say, well, you are tempting me to sin. That's what he's saying. So this is the canopy accusation that James highlights here. And the entire section relates to this. The entire section from 13b right up to 18 relates back to this. Now I want you to pay attention to this command. Notice what it says. Do not say or let no one say that I am being tempted by God. This is a negative command. Don't say this. While it may sound like a soft suggestion, and that's a, an error in, in English, not in Greek, it is actually a very strong negation. And the weight of that negation is this. You must not say this. Don't say this. Or you could say, stop saying this. What is it? God is tempting me. So stop saying it. Because it is not true. The direct quote that James gives you, you can see in the middle of verse uh, 18, there's quotation marks, I am being tempted by God. That is the quote. So James is quoting a common belief or common saying. And he says, don't say that. One translation adds the words, solicited to sin. I'm being tempted by God or solicited to sin by God, which captures the idea, I like it, but it's not solicited, it's not in the, the text. The substance here that James is dealing with, and I think it's pretty clear from the text itself, is that you cannot put your temptation on God. That's it. Now how do I know that this really leads to believers? Well, look in the middle of this verse at the end of the first clause in this verse, he says, no one must say he is being tempted or when he is tempted, as some translations say. That word tempt, which you see in the beginning of verse 13, is the same word you see in verse 12, which is what? Trial. It's the same word you see in verse 2, which is trial. And I said to you, 
when I started this book, that the section deals with the believer in trials. So James is still dealing with trials. So if you read from verse 12, which I did this morning, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under what? Trial for when he has stood the test. What is the test? The trial. He will receive the crown, which is life, is the genitive there, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when in a trial is the implication. James hasn't shifted to temptation yet. He's still in the midst of trials and he's saying to a believer in trials, when you are faced with hardship, affliction and trials, don't say God is tempting you to sin. That's the point. He is making a uh, mention of temptation and that will come later uh, in the verse and in verse uh, 14. But up till this point, it's always been about trials. So let's keep the consistency with James as he mentions trials throughout this text up to verse 13 and translate the first part of verse 13 to say trial. So if you have a pen, you can write in trial there. It's okay. It's the same word. You won't go to hell. No one, let no one say when tried or when in a trial or when he is trialed, I am being tempted by God. That makes a little bit more sense. Why does it matter? The unstated theology in the entirety of this text is that God sends what? Yes, yes, we are in James. Um, Where are we? The unstated theology behind the entire text is that God sends trials. But also in verse 12, he says, He's the rewarder of those who endure trials. So keep that in mind. If God is the one who places you in the trial, then if temptation then is taking place in the trial, what is the natural conclusion? God must be sending the temptation. So James is warding off that natural leap that people are making and saying, don't you dare blame your temptation on God. And I'll get to that in a moment's time. This verse 13 provides a corrective. The Jerusalem Bible translates it this way. Never, when you are being put to the test, as in the sense of a trial, Say, God is tempting me. That is the most literal translation that I've read. Like it. Hits it on the point. So the text literally says, No one when he is tried or when in a trial must say, I am tempted by God. James is saying that the source of your temptation is not the trial, nor is it God. That is not the source. But look at verse 14. But each person is tempted by his own lust. Don't blame God for what you are to blame for. So let's pause here and consider the implications of this. The first part of verse 13 is a what? Command. An imperative. 
An imperative or command means that there is an expected response. So what is James expecting believers to do? What is he expecting them to do? Not blame God for their temptation. So if James commands us not to blame God for the temptation, then when you do that, what is it? It's simple. What is it? A sin. Any command that is disobeyed is a sin. Very simple. No believer has the right to place on God the cause of their sin. No one can say, God causes me to sin. Let that sink in. That is heavy. Let me read it to you again. No one, when tried, can say or must say, I am being tempted by God. Stop saying it, James says. Why? Because it's sinful. The implication of this is horrendous, and we'll get to that in a moment's time. James expects an ongoing obedience to this command. Now this ideology of blaming God may have found its source in, during the times in the, in the Old Testament. Proverbs 13, 3, 19.3 says this, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. He makes a bad decision, and it ends in a bad outcome. And he says, well, must be the Lord. must be his fault that this has happened. Or maybe they say, you know what? Since God is sovereign, and I made a bad choice, it must be the will of the Lord anyway. He turns on God. You made me do this. And yet, the, uh, Solomon says, it's his own folly. It's his foolish decision-making that caused that. In extra-biblical material, there are numerous accounts which are similar to what we are finding here in James. In fact, some of them saying it's because James is Jewish and he knows the Talmud and the Syriac and all those kind of uh, materials. He probably bases it on that. I don't believe that. I think having the knowledge of the common sayings amongst people, James takes that and implies that believers should not follow that kind of thinking. Notice, to, notice what the Syriac says. Quote, because I left the way, do not say it was he who led me astray. Sounds nice, right? End quote. But what he's saying here is that if you end up moving away from God in disobedience to God, don't say that God caused that. Why was there such a need to correct this kind of thinking? Well, because it is common. It was common then and it is still common today. Partly because there's such a misunderstanding of God's work in hardship and human responsibility in hardship. Secondly, also because we like to blame others. You know where you get that from? Adam. You know what happened in the garden? When Eve partook of the, it was an apple, a fruit, and she ate it. The Bible says, and she gave to her man who was with her. He was there, right next to her. And he saw, 
He probably heard the snake talking, didn't smack it against the head. What are you doing? Talk to my wife. And then he's got the gumption to say, well, you know what? I went to sleep, I woke up, and then this, this, this woman was there. I didn't ask for her. It's the woman you gave me. And every man after Adam does the same thing. It's your fault. It's your fault. Why was there a stain on the coffee table? Well, if you didn't bring me coffee, there wouldn't be a stain. It's your fault. Sometimes God's people rationalize his sin, saying that if God has not placed us in this circumstance, if it wasn't the will of the Lord for me to be here in the straw, I would not have sinned. That is exactly what James is saying you should not do. Some say, well, you know, I know it's sin, but God must be doing this for a reason. No. No, God is not causing you to do wrong. That is the kind of thinking James is condemning. Trials are not temptations. Now, it is true that there may be temptations in trials, but trials is not a temptation. Trials are, the, are God's classroom to mature his people. It's the, the lesson room. Temptations are the opposite of that. It draws you out of the classroom, away from God. James says, don't blame God for your sin. Now, is it wrong to say or ask, does God test? Would that be a wrong question? No, because God does test. It's a bad English sentence. I know, I know. God tests is the proper grammar there. Yes, he tested Abraham, Job, Joseph. Even Jesus was tested, right? Matthew uses the same verb to describe Jesus' what? Temptation in the wilderness. It says, and he was led by the Spirit, that's Luke, by the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted. Same word. But the source of the temptation is not God or Jesus. Because God and Jesus being one cannot be tempted. Devil tempted God in the wilderness. God tested Abraham in the sacrifice of Isaac. But not to see if he would actually kill his son, but to demonstrate the nature and the quality of his faith. Abraham, interestingly, had absolute confidence even if Isaac died, God would be able to raise him from the dead. He had absolute confidence that he was going to keep his covenant, that there would be a seed. His obedience to God demonstrates his faith. So yes, God tests. Indeed, he does. Some of you may be in tests right now. But he never tempts to sin. Therefore, James makes the case that we cannot ever blame God for our sin because God is not responsible for our sin. There is a world of difference uh, between the motive for trial and the motive for temptation. God provides trials for maturity and growth. Temptation induces a believer to oppose God's will and sin against God. Big difference. Spurgeon says this, quote, God tries men 
but the motive of a trial is that which differences it from a temptation. In a temptation, we try a man with a view of inducing him to do a wrong. But God tries men to do, uh, but God tries men to best them. That's not me, that's Spurgeon. That they may, by finding out their weaknesses, be saved from doing wrong. He never inclines a heart to evil. While he doeth all things, and is in all things, yet not so that he himself doeth evil, or can be charged therewith. Therefore it is wrong to say that God tempts me to sin. Now at this stage, in verse 13, he moves from the imperative or the declaration of the theological um, um, obedience, that, that command, to a defense, a theological defense. This is why James says you cannot blame God for your temptation. The first theological defense that James provides is the essence of God. There are two parts to it. Let's look at the first. Verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tried or in a trial, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with or by evil. Pause there. God's essence does not allow him to tempt believers to sin. So James says, don't blame God, and here is my theological reason. Number one. God cannot be tempted with evil. There are two independent clauses here. The first which I just mentioned, and then secondly, and he himself tempts no one. We're going to look at the first first. The first defense that James provides is this theological gem, and it relates to the essence of God. He cannot be tempted with evil. The four here in the beginning of the clause for God cannot be tempted, implies a development and or an explanation of his argument. So don't blame God. Don't say that God is tempting me. Here's why. Because, by, because God, by his very nature, is incapable of being tempted. He cannot be tempted by evil or with evil. James is explaining why the claim that God tempts us to do evil is bogus and without merit. He raises up as a defense the character of God. He is untemptable, is the word. Untemptable by evil. Why? He doesn't have to state it, but the supposition or the reason for that is because God is utterly pure and holy in his essence. And he gets to that later on in the section. So why can't we blame God? Well, because his very nature and essence prohibits him from being tempted and tempting anyone. So why do we have this statement? Because it tells you something about God and the nature of temptation. If the accusation is that God tempts us to do evil, then the implication of that is then God, by definition, should have the capacity to be tempted to do evil. Does that make sense? 
If he's able to tempt with evil, he must be tempted by evil. And so James says the opposite. God cannot tempt towards evil because he is not tempted by evil. It's impossible. He cannot in any sense be tempted by any kind of evil. And I know that there are theologians maybe listening all year and their wheels are turning. Hmm, how is that possible if, and I'll get to the if in a moment's time. The words here, cannot be tempted, is translated from one adjective, which essentially means to lack knowledge or ability to do something. Think about that. To lack knowledge or ability to do something. It is intensified by a little verb, which is called the state of verb, is which gives the intensified sense that God is continually in a state of being untempted by evil. Consider that. Wow. He's continually separated from the, not even from the boundary of being tempted. He's never, ever tempted by evil. Ever. He's always and ever in a state of being untempted. We don't understand that because we are on the opposite side of that. So in order to understand what this means, what God cannot be tempted by evil means, let me explain a little bit what temptation is. So what is temptation? Well, we could say, and I will expand on this next week because it deals with man, but we could say for now, temptation is an enticement towards sin and evil. Very simply stated. But evil and sin stands in contradistinction to God because God is what? Holy. Therefore, sin cannot find its source in God. The very nature and essence of God prohibits God to sin. The very nature and essence of God prohibits sin or temptation to enter God's Periphery. It's not even on his landscape. The Apostle John says it this way. God is light and in him there is no darkness. What? Udemia. Not at all. Not even in the least sense. Darkness here is synonymous with sin or anything that opposes holiness. There is no stain or mark of moral failure or evilness in God. And for that reason, he can never, ever, ever, ever tempt anyone to do evil. Anything that stands opposed to God's nature can never enter God's desire. And that's important to understand. What James is saying is that there is something that God cannot do. There's something that God is incapable of doing because of his very nature. What is it? He can never sin and he can never tempt to sin because his nature disallows that. Why is this important? Often I hear people say, God decrees sin. That is a categorical error. It's a misuse and a misunderstanding of what decree means. No, he cannot and he will not ever cause sin. 
Decree is singular, not decrees. Decrees, when it's used of God's words, relates to the word of God. Decree, singular, relates to the plan and the counsel and the purpose of God always. Doesn't matter where it is, it always relates to that singular plan that God has, which is the exaltation of his name and his glory in the future. You cannot use that of God decreeing things, individual things. That God is causing me to sin, so he decreed sin. James says, that is a sin. What you've just done is blame God for sin. That is evil. That should never cross the lips of God's people, is what he's saying. Moreover, look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. Why does he start verse 16 with do not be deceived? Because if you believe that God is able to tempt you to sin, you are being self-deceived or you are being deceived by others. It's impossible for God to cause people to sin. James says he's untemptable. It doesn't enter him. Why? Because of the nature of what temptation is and how it relates to only humankind. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he, that is the believer or an unbeliever, is lured and enticed by his own desire. There is a connection between what temptation is and the innate human desire. See, God doesn't have that sinful desire. So he can never be tempted or lured out away from righteousness or holiness. But people can. Because we don't fully understand temptation, we sometimes say, well, God can be tempted or God can tempt with sin, with, with, um, or towards sin. James says, no. no. You're misunderstanding it. God cannot do that. And if you do believe that, you are being deceived. Some say that the words here, do not be deceived, is a teaching that James is countering. It's possible. I think more likely it is a common belief that has been permeated amongst uh, the Jews by that time. You see it a lot, a, a lot in uh, uh, extra-biblical material. They believe that God is somehow causing them to do wrong, even the uprising against Rome, that it was God's uh, prompting for them to do that. Now, I know that we may be thinking, but what about Jesus? He was tempted, wasn't he? Yes. So if God cannot be tempted, how is it that Jesus was tempted? That's a legitimate question. Thank you for asking it. If you understand James's argument here, he says that God is untemptable. He does not say that temptation does not exist. He does not say that the temptation is not real. He does not say that Jesus was not uh, tempted. And I'll get to what that means in a moment's time. But what he's talking about is that God is not able to be lured by sin. Why? Because there's nothing inside God that can be lured to do wrong. So how does this thing relate to Jesus? When Jesus was in the wilderness, it says that he was 
led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Does that mean that Jesus is tempted by any of the offering that Satan offers? No. Doesn't mean that he is tempted. He's being tempted. It's different from saying that Jesus is tempted. The, the, the verb usage there is that there's some external thing that's being applied to Jesus. He's being tempted by the devil, but not he himself is being tempted by sin. That's usually different. James is saying the latter, that God is not able to be tempted. And Jesus, being God, was not ever tempted by anything that this world or the devil could offer him. Why? Because by his own nature, he's untemptable. Does that make sense? I see a lot of glaring blank faces. I know it's, it's theological, but it will make sense eventually. Here's why I say that. The word evil denotes those things which, are, which have the moral quality of being base, bad, degrading, clearly the very opposite of the things that are ethically good, morally sound, and holy. So evil is the opposite to what God is, which is holiness. The nature and essence of God, to so God being holy, stands in contradistinction to what evilness is. God can never be drawn to that because His holiness prohibits Him from being drawn to evilness. Evilness can never draw Him out. It draws us out, but it can never draw Him out. Why? Because there's nothing in God that can be drawn out to resonate with that. Let me illustrate it this way. A bee, I know this is, I've tried to think of an illustration. <laughs> it's the best I could come up with. A bee has antennas and um, pollen uh, uh, um, receptors. So it can detect um, pollen from a little bit further than a kilometer away. That, that's pretty far, right? It picks up that resonation, it picks up that, that, that smell, what, it, what we would call, um, and it can go towards it, get it, and come back home without getting distracted, without getting lost. The reason a bee can do that is because there is something innately given to the bee that resonates with what pollen is. You get in the picture, right? Something in the bee is, enables it to pick up the scent of pollen from a kilometer plus away. Now let me put it in human terms. There is something inside a human that resonates with sin or temptation. That it doesn't matter how far it is from you, it draws you out. You see it every day. Go to the shop and you see some nice things in the gun store. Oh, look at that. <laughs> not, not that we do that. Or you go past... Uh, the Jaguar store, it's a car, car, for those of you who don't know. And you're drawn away while driving by desiring that beautiful pink Jaguar. Why? Because something external to you is resonating with something internal to you. The pollen resonates with something internal to the bee. You get the analogy, right? With God, it is the opposite. There is nothing internal to God that resonates to evil or sin. 
But look at verse 14. Each person is tempted. Oh, um, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? Something internal. Do you get it now? The reason why temptation can only be used of mankind is because there is something inside of us that reverberates on the same frequency as sin. Temptation. Does that analogy make sense, the reverberation? (laughs) Thank you, Shantan. The nature and the essence of God prohibits him ever to be tempted. Isn't that a comfort? That's a comfort to me. God will never lead us into temptation. God never dangles the carrot of sin in front of us. Or if you've got a hamster, a, a corn, in front of us, and say, let me see how far I can lead you or close, how, how far I can take you towards sin. And let me see if, I'll, if, if I take you there, what you will do. God never does that. Instead, James says, stop blaming God. Blame yourself. What's wrong with you? Look at your own heart. Before you blame God, know the essence of God. Know his nature. Know his character. Before you say that it is his fault. God cannot be blamed for sin because sin, by its very nature, is contrary to the essence and character of God. I'm just trying to make up some time here. James intersects many theological truths in this one statement, and it should not be taken lightly. Now, I know that there are theologians thinking, "Ah, I've got one for you. What about the Lord's Prayer? And lead us not into what? Temptation. Ah, I got you. Mm, Okay, I'll grant you that. It does say that. And lead us not into temptation. But this is not implying that God is tempting us to do evil. What it means is this. Don't allow us to come under the sway of temptation. Don't allow us to allow temptation to overpower us. Don't allow temptation to cause us to sin. You know what it is? It's a plea of protection from God. That's all that it is. It's asking God to help. Why? Because sinful beings who resonate on the same frequency as sin and temptation need divine help to keep us from sinning against God. That's why you have that in the Bible. We are tempted. God is not. So don't blame shift is what James is saying. God is not to receive your blame your temptation. Secondly, I don't know, what is the time? 20 past. Briefly, the second clause here, he himself, at the end of the verse, he himself tempts no one. James goes from no one in the beginning of the verse, did you note that? Let no one say to no one at the end of the verse. So just that you know that I'm still talking about the same group of people. And he himself Tempts no one. Again, no one here is in the context of the believer in a trial. So when you're in a trial, don't say God is tempting you to do sin. The trial is for maturity, for growth, not for sin. So, 
If that is the case, then that God is not tempting you as his child to do wrong. And he himself tempts no one. The verbal force here is that there is an ongoing reality. God regularly, consistently, never tempts anyone. Now, this may be strange because, again, we may be thinking, but God tested Abraham. Yes, it is translated from the same word, but it's a different meaning. God does not tempt in the sense to draw us to sin. But God does test. It is true. God tests. This is not what God, uh, James is saying. The context here is the tempting of evil. And some translations would have that at the end of the verse. He himself tempts no one to sin or to solicit, uh, or he himself solicits no one to do evil or to sin. Uh, it's allowable because it captures the idea of what James is saying. If evil is moral failure, anything then that is antithetical to his holy nature, by, very, by its very nature is then sin. So God cannot tempt you to do evil. There's an em- emphasis here, an emphatic statement. He himself. Why does he say that? Because of the nature of God. God's essence prohibits him from acting in a certain way. And in this context there, he can't tempt us to do evil. Thank you. That is, that is comfort. God won't lead you to do wrong. There's an implication for us here. Temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that which is innately common to man to be brought about in man. There is no sin that God is wanting you to do. God being holy and perfect, set apart from all sin, can never sin, and he could never cause sin. Therefore, temptation is not only an impossibility for God, but God is not able. God has, let me put it this way, has disallowed himself to tempt people towards evil. It doesn't move God like it moves us. So God doesn't ever test us to do wrong. James says, this is why you can never blame God for your sin. Number one, he's not tempted by evil. And number two, he tempts no one. That's absolute. So let me ask you then. When we say things like God decrees sin, what are we saying? We are sinning. We are doing wrong by claiming that God is the author of sin. Again, it's a misuse of the word decree. Let me put this in context. The book of James is written in a time where Jews were fleeing for their lives. Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 12. They flee from Jerusalem because of persecution, because of the gospel, because of the firm faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the Lord of glory, and is risen from the dead. And because of that, they are being hunted down and killed. 
Not only so, but in this community of the synagogue, in chapter 2, uh, verse 3, I think it is, you'll see that. He's speaking to believers in the midst of ungodly Jews who are being discriminated against. They are being mistreated. Some of them are poor. They are believers who are being neglected. Some are being spoken to with harsh words. And some are not receiving their wages in chapter 5. Unjust condemnation, murder and imprisonment is taking place in this context. This is the historical context in which James is talking about. All of those things are morally evil, are wicked. And yet what does he say? You count it all joy. Why? Because you have an infinitely wise God who knows what he's doing. You may be in affliction. You may be treated harshly. You, you are not uh, um, accountable or... That's uh, um, um, what I'm looking for. Accountable for their evil actions. But you faithfully endure. Why? Because God is not doing evil work. You may be receiving the, the net result of evil work being done against you, but God himself is not doing evil work. He's doing a good work in your life. He's not tempting you to sin, regardless of the outcome. I'd like the, the cultural Nazis today to consider that. Regardless of the outcome, God is not tempting us to sin. Even if you're being discriminated against, how should we respond? Well, the way that James expects us to respond. God is maturing his people through trials. James provides a theological response to the claim that God somehow tempts believers to do wrong, and he says, no, you are wrong. God doesn't ever do that. Trials are given to grow believers and not dragging believers away from him. Remember that. Trials are given to mature us, not to keep us from God. Hardship, affliction is there to grow us, not a reason to stay away from God. I wonder how many of us can say that through the hardship of COVID, we are closer to God. I mean, how, how many of us can say, whether you're listening online or you hear, can say that, you know what? This difficulty in the world has caused me to go closer to God. How many of us could sing the last song that we just sang with, with tremendous conviction, knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing when it comes to our hardship and affliction. How many of us are willing to put our heads on the block and say, that is true of me, despite the affliction that we are in. It is better now, I am better off now than I was in the beginning of COVID. Why are we fearful to answer in the affirmative? Because we know in our heart of hearts that it may not be true. God is not wanting us to disobey him by not coming to church, by not fellowshipping with his saints, with the presence of COVID. It's a clear command. Do not forsake 
the gathering together of the saints. I don't care if you have one leg in the grave, God says, do not forsake. We probably have to visit you in your deathbed, but do not forsake it. God is not wanting us to disobey every command because we are desiring to be socially correct and socially acceptable. That temptation does not come from God, but from your own desire to be unfaithful to Him. To please your own heart and your own conscience. My only encouragement to you is this. Know the nature and the essence of God so that you may rightly respond to this heretical idea that God is somehow to blame for your desire to disobey Him. What we learn from this is that a proper understanding of God, knowing who he is, will help us deal with our trials and our temptation better. If temptation does not come from God, what then is the true source of temptation? We'll come back next week and we'll deal with that, verse 14 and 15. So I encourage you to join us to deal with the source of temptation. Father, we are thankful to you for your patient nature and grace upon us. Lord, we are so disobedient. We pick and choose which verses we want to obey and which verses is applicable to us. You are absolutely clear on what it means to follow you. And yet we have decided to make it culturally acceptable. We, we think in terms of how the world desires us to respond and not in terms of how you command us to respond. Father, forgive us. We are unfaithful on so many levels. We blame you for so many sins that we are accountable for for ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to understand this truth and to rightly respond to it as we give thanks to you in your name. Amen.